Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics and Pop Culture Podcast, coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, I am the Beyonder. Wait, what? Many times across the unimaginable breadth of space, I have observed and learned from humanity. I have unraveled the secrets of life and death, of heroism and villainy. I learned to use the bathroom. But there is one thing which eludes me still. The secrets of comics. And so I have summoned you here to Battle Pod Fan Bros. Into it with L. Collins. Less than live with Cater Die. Journey into misery. Silence. Wait, what? House to astonish. War Rocket Ajax, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men. You represent Earth's mightiest comics podcasts. You shall teach me the ways of your strange world or be destroyed. Help me understand, and all you desire shall be yours. Nothing you dream of is impossible for me to accomplish. Hello. 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 Wow. Hello. Perfect. Wow. Yeah. This is the magic of the internet, ladies and gentlemen. Congratulations. And also, uh, I'm not sure who became a lady during the last time we all spoke. So uh, sorry about that. That's kind of didn't didn't, <laughs> pretty didn't mean to out you. Yeah, exactly. So, but we're all very accepting. So, uh, uh, Chico, do you want to say hello to to Paul and Gary Lactus here? Hi, Paul and Gary. Uh, this is Chico Leo from uh, Brooklyn from the Fan Bros podcast. Um, I, have, I have heard it. Oh, it good. Is... Hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. So wait, w- which is Paul and which is Gary, right? I'm Paul. Okay. And and I'm Gary. Well, Fraser, oh. but for the purposes of this, Gary Lactus. <laughs> okay. Gary's the sonorous one. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You've... Um... Gary definitely has us all beat in terms of the commanding audio presence. I think so. Uh, it's it's a silly show off thing that I do when I'm podcasting. It makes me sort of I don't know feel like I'm doing something proper. <laughs> Pod- podcasting is becoming more proper by the day. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Terrifyingly so. So, guys, what I'm going to do is, if you don't mind, now that we've had the quick intro uh, to one another informally, uh, I'm going to start doing the official part, which is uh, I'll read off basically the... the, the episode uh, intro for the, the Secret Convergence part, and then uh, I will ask each person to introduce each other, and in theory, maybe I'll be the, the ringmaster in terms of, of asking uh, the questions about the, the creators and things. Feel free to start a mutiny now. Otherwise, I'm, I'm going to start that in about I don't know, five seconds. Is that okay with everyone? So, so is sure. the plan to do one book each, one creator each, one character each? That was my goal. Uh, Chico had mentioned that he basically just worked up uh, creators rather than characters and books. But that's that's okay. I can and 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 other people are going to go first, and we can you know we're going to be going back and forth. Right. I mean, I have yeah, I definitely have creator books, uh, character. Yeah, that it shouldn't be a problem. Okay, Beautiful. it was all it was all a, a big melange in my head. That's <laughs> everyone loves a sexy melange, a melange right. or a cat, you know, that's right. So, that's right. 
Very exciting. All right. Well, so I'll lead us in. Get everyone to introduce uh, your, uh, you know, all uh, your names and your podcasts, and then we'll start in. Let's go. Let's go with characters, books, and creators, and then uh, and then we'll um, we'll 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 spice it up. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Cool. You guys are fabulous. Okay. So this episode is part six of Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts, a nine-part series of roundtable debates across the great and the good, the brave and the bold of comics podcasting. And today, uh, we are very, very lucky to have a murderer's row of comics podcasting talent. Uh, first, why don't we start off with you, Mr. Lactus? Hello there. This is Gary Lactus from Silence Podcast, uh, which is you can find at mindlessones.com. It's a podcast in which myself and my compatriot, The Beast Must Die, talk about comics. Fascinating. Something like that. Yes. Wow. And uh, also with us, I believe, Mr. Leo. Uh, hi, this is Chico Leo uh, from the Fan Bros podcast. And we do a twice weekly podcast, uh, myself and DJ Ben Hameen and Tatiana King. Um, we discuss comics, tech news, movies, and a lot of TV uh, from the perspective of an urban geek. And so um, we definitely do talk lots of comic stuff, but we also talk, you know, again, uh, TV. Um, so we do more, more of a general geek podcast. But um, you can find us at fanbros.com. Or uh, on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher. Just look for Fan Bros. Wow, I have to say, I'm I'm very impressed that you are a full service podcaster. That's pretty great. Well, um, no, that's, it's, <laughs> there's definitely a group of us. Uh, so you know, we each uh, we each cover different topics each week. But um, yeah, and then one of our podcasts is is the TV one, and the other one focuses more on comics and movies. But it's generally the same cast. So do you? So do you have a specialty beat, Chico? Do you, are you are you considered like the expert podcaster in a, a particular topic? Well, I, I actually am the TV guy, ah. um, but I am a longtime comics fan and actually did work at DC Comics for three and a half years. Ooh. So I actually have a little bit of a sort of knowledge from the other side of of the of the desk. Um, wow. that I sort of bring to the, <laughs> to the comics conversations. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm actually more, more the TV guy. Um, but that's okay. I'm more than happy. I love talking about comics. Well, that is perfect. That is perfect. You are, you're going to bring an, an amazing spectrum to what otherwise would be a focused gamma ray burst of comics, uh, podcasting. Um, <laughs> for me, uh, in theory, because this is be this is going to be an episode of wait, what people are used to hearing me. It is Jeff Lester without, uh, his, uh, significant, uh, podcasting life partner Graham McMillan who is off trapped in another podcasting universe but uh, I feel very lucky that uh, I have such three esteemed guests to help um, prop up my shambling digressive opinions welcome and finally you know the Mr. Sinatra of the table uh, (laughs) Mr. O'Brien am I meant to sing here yes Um, (laughs) no Um, I'm Paul O'Brien 
<laughs> I'm, I'm Paul O'Brien. I'm from uh, House to Astonish. You can find us at HouseToAstonish.com. It's a podcast I do with Al Kennedy. Uh, we do it every three to four weeks um, these days. It's comics. We talk about comics. We review comics. We, we yeah, it's comics. And uh, on the blog HouseToAstonish.com, we also do, or I also do, a bit of music, a bit of indie wrestling, and I'm about to start a series on preschool British children's television. <gasps> oh wow. my god, that's going to be great. Yeah, I thought when I suggested this that everybody would tell me it was a terrible idea, but it seems a lot more people want to read about that than actually want to read about the X-Men these days. You know what? <laughs> See, this is it. I'm like, if you can bring that laser-like intelligence of yours to a topic that somehow manages to be even more ridiculous than the X-Men, I think that it's just going to be that much more brilliant and delightful. I I have so much to say about In the Night Garden. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've heard amazing things. Actually, uh, that is that is the one that that everyone is telling me I should be properly traumatized by. So. Can can I just check, Paul? You, do you have a child? I do have a child. He is just. <laughs> I got to tell you, why didn't that occur to me? I yes, uh, I see. This is this is why I. It's a really good way of combining research for, for blog material mm-hmm. with childcare. <laughs> Pragmatic Two birds, to the end. Indeed, indeed. So uh, to, to transition from birds to worms, uh, the theme, such as it is, of this of this uh, secret convergence podcast is the worm turns. Books, characters, and creators that we used to hate, but we now love, or unfortunately, uh, vice versa. So... Um, I think we should start off maybe with uh, characters, I think. Um, I don't know. Considering I, I lined everybody up uh, alphabetically, maybe I should reverse this and uh, throw this out. Paul, do you have a character that you want to talk about? That uh, Okay. You... Mm-hmm. I'll go for a character that I used to passionately hate and have now come around to thinking is actually really interesting. Okay. Captain America. I hated Captain America when I was a teenager. Hated, hated, hated. Because he was invariably written as the conscience of the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. And to me, the way that came across was, this is Captain America. He represents America. He also represents all that is good. You may notice that those things go together. That's it. It was a very sort of, oh, God, flag-waving Americanism is the way I tended to see it at the time. And now... I realise that actually Captain America is a fascinating character mm-hmm. because it's actually built into the guy's origin story that he signs up to be propaganda for the USA. Mm. He's not just one of these um, pa- patriotic heroes who happens to be very patriotic or happens to be really American. His actual role, even in the Golden Age stories, mm. is that he's there to be a representative of the entirety of the USA and to be an inspirational patriotic figure. And that actually, I think, is quite interesting. I think there's a lot of really interesting stories you can do with that. And with the idea of, um, of, of course, anyone can be Captain America because it's a, it's a premise that's Anyone can be given the, con- the the costume and can go on to be Captain America. Mm-hmm. You can infinitely swap in different characters and say, can these guys represent the USA? Hmm. But for Steve Rogers in particular, I, mean, I think the whole idea of can anyone represent a whole country mm-hmm. is kind of weird and worth exploring. Right. But I also think that with Steve in particular, you've got this idea that here's this guy who is absolutely um, you know, pure of heart, passionate of his moral principles Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and yet in his entire time as Captain America has said basically nothing that was controversial in any way whatsoever. <laughs> I think he took, Which, he took on the Tea Party briefly at one point a few years ago. Almost and, um, accidentally, yeah. if Marvel is to be believed. They were right, kind of right. like, that's, oh yeah. That's about it. For the most part, Captain America is, well, he, he's against things that everyone's against, like terrorism. Yeah. He's pro things that everyone's in favor, and he will try and change the subject if you want to talk about gun control of abortion. <laughs> <laughs> and that leads you to conclude that either Steve Rogers has no opinions on any matters that are controversial, right. or he bites his tongue because it's more important to him to be a symbol than to voice <laughs> his opinions on these things, which makes him the queen. Mm, wow. <laughs> nice. Wow. Except carrying a red, white, and blue dustbin lid with which he holds baddies. <laughs> You know, Paul. Yet, the Queen's function is to represent the country in a completely non-controversial way. The only people in the real world who represent entire countries and do it without saying anything controversial are monarchs. Mm. And Captain America figure, figure is the Queen as a superhero. Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. That's, Interesting. That's cool. Warning, one, one of the, one of the things I think it's all downhill from here, as far as my contribution is concerned. That's no, I, I think one of the really interesting points that you made is about Captain America, rep you know, being an individual who represents America, because America was a lot more homogeneous in you know in the late '30s when when Cap was created than Captain America is now, and of course you know Steve, Steve Rogers is not Captain America in the in the Marvel universe right now um and 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 there has been a huge you know change in the uh, in the makeup of of america in in the last say 60 70 years and it is interesting is you know does steve rogers represent america anymore mm -hmm. um not 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 necessarily suggesting that uh you know that the falcon does but um uh yeah i think that's that that's a very interesting point well, and I, I think, think there's something quite interesting as well about the idea that I think there's something quite valuable in having Steve Rogers as a guy who used to represent America in the past. Yeah. But even having him there as part of continuity as the guy who was Captain America is actually quite useful for whoever's now Captain America. Yeah, I think I think the, the way the way they've handled uh, Cap in the in the films is uh, I think that's probably the the best way of sort of. It, it, my opinion is it could go one of two ways. You can do it like the films where he is this anachronistic character, mm -hmm. you know, um, and look, the, like you say, harkens back to a time when um, when America was much much more homogenous. Um, or you could you could it'd be quite interesting to just let really politicised writers loose on Cap because he's just <laughs> like this. He's just like this cipher, isn't he, really? It's just this sort of blank thing. And, uh, yeah, it'd be great to have a, a whole bunch of, like, um, uh, you know, it'd be nice to have Frank Miller take right. cat alongside Alesh Cott, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd like to see the different, the different takes that people could, could, could go with that. Yeah.
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, like doing something like Batman Black and White, where they just get, you know, a whole array of creators to do, you know, 10 page stories different or even, you know, different runs. But the idea of getting some sort of real right wing people in there and some left wing people in there because he is such a cipher and, and, and it really is down to, you know, how he's written. And, uh, you know, the, the point of view of the writer, that, that definitely would be really interesting. I just worry you'd get, like, the, the goddamn Batman, you know, over and over again just with a shield. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, think, I think that is one of the, the things that um, it's, it's almost – this almost never happens. But I'm, I'm going to give uh, Mark Miller some points for, for subtlety in the way that he <laughs> made Captain America in the Ultimates be – comparatively much more subtly right wing than I think we would have gotten uh, if you turned around to a lot of uh, American writers and said, okay, right wing Captain America go, you know, that's John Walker. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Who is not subtle. No, no, exactly. For myself, I just want to say that, that, that I think that those are all brilliant points. I'm sort of a fan of, of Captain America as he stands where I thought you were actually going to go with this, Paul, is the idea that Captain America is a person who the way that he really ends up embodying America is that he is an individual that somehow is supposed to represent the country that he is constantly out of time, out of touch with. You know, and so there's always this thing where Captain America, like you said, he doesn't take a lot of very strong opinions. And yet the constant what what tends to get churned up as a story point over and over again is, is that Steve Rogers is not Captain America in right, you know, and therefore and I and I think that in a way I have to say if there's one way, perhaps the only way in which Captain America actively represents all Americans is that I believe that each of us are being told every day by various corners of the, the media that we are not being American in the right way, that we're not being American <laughs> enough, that we're, you know, that we're not representing the right things, that we are somehow doing America wrong. And I think, and I think that that really is, might be the closest way in which Captain America truly represents accurately um, some sense of what it feels like to be an American. That and the fact that we all use dustbins to um, to beat up baddies with. That's kind of a thing. I, I'm sort of surprised I haven't told you guys about it, but you get one when you become a citizen here, and it's awesome. I've got one on the wall right now. So, um, Okay. Well, Paul, that, that truly uh, um, uh, 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 an insightful take and kind of interesting. I really want to see your Captain America jump around on the comics page now. Chico, um, to hop over me for a second. How about yourself? Do you have, do you have a character up your sleeve that's a, uh, well, you know, I, I, I don't know if you can even actually say if it's the fault of the book or the franchise or the actual character, but, um, I'm going to say Spider-Man. Um, mm. I definitely really, you know, um, uh, they used a lot of young boy characters to bring in young male readers over the years, but Spider-Man was really the one that everyone, or at least, you know, that I really identified with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, I mean, we know the whole thing, you know, he's a nerd. Um, there, there's something like the X-Men in that everyone hates Spider-Man, but Spider-Man is always saving the day. Right. Um, and there was something really identifiable about him. 
And, you know, then they had him marry, you know, uh, Mary Jane became a supermodel and then he married her and then they did the whole stunt with the clone, you know, and it's, 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 you know, there's been aliens involved, like what they've done to the character slash the franchise in terms of, you know, wiping out continuity, bringing the continuity back, you know, mm-hmm. aliens, all all of the things that they've done over the last, say, 25 years, really, mm-hmm. um, you know, since the 90s uh, with the character. And that's not to say there haven't been some great stories in there, but in general, it, it, it's such a different, uh, and I'm not even talking about anything like Miles Morales or anything like that, but just what... Spider-Man really represented for the first, you know, 300 issues of the run. Mm -hmm. Um, Even after they introduced Web of Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man. So it isn't only just that, you know, went from being one book. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, um, on the other hand, I know things were organic and there are plenty of nerds out there who grew up to, uh, who got good at what they did and married supermodels. Um, uh, you know, and so I don't want to take hope away from anyone out there listening that that's, (laughs) that, that might happen to them, but, um, it it was, it was not organic. It, it really felt a lot like, oh, we need to do something big here. And, uh, a lot of it was not, uh, the character of Peter Parker and the character of Spider-Man didn't seem to be what came first. Um, it was more, you know, market type needs, it, it would seem, uh, which which are also understandable. Right. I also have to be one of those people. I didn't like any of the Spider-Man movies. In fact, I never even saw the second one of the most recent. Ooh, it I was terrible. Think, no, it's yeah, bad. that's that's what I heard. Mm-hmm. So I even feel there like that's that's a symptom of the fact that the character is uh, is sort of floundering at sea and has been for a long time. Well, let, let me let me ask you this, Chico. Because uh, do you think? Because I feel that that Spider Man is the unfortunate um, uh, poster boy for the problems inherent w- with uh, continuing continuity. Because a lot of the things that you talk about are sort of this accretion of things that move him farther and farther away from that original concept, but. Weirdly enough, I also feel that in the original, original concept of Spider-Man is the idea that characters are allowed to grow and change and that he wasn't always going to be in high school. Do you think that Spider-Man's better served by essentially being in stasis? Like, no change, the illusion of change or actual change? Do you think that there's a way in which Spider-Man ideally would work or is he set up in a way that any of those things will ultimately lead to putting himself in checkmate, so to speak? I think that's a really interesting question. I would point to the Simpsons as some, as a, you know, now that's not one character. That's a whole, that's a whole, you know, um, community with hundreds of characters, but they haven't changed. I mean, um, at, at all, um, over 25 years, um, whereas something like one of the big appeals of the Harry Potter series was actually watching the kids grow up right. um, in the series, not just the three main characters, but the whole, all the other kids as well, you know, the Neville Longbottoms and all the others. Um, so I, I would point to those franchises as showing that you can do either of the things that you're suggesting. Now, if, if they had left, um, you know, Spider-Man in, in high school indefinitely, which 
is is perhaps a choice that they could have made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that seems to have worked with the uh, the Archie. I, I'm not reading the new Archie comics, but mm-hmm. I'm assuming they're still in high school, right? I mean, they're just fighting the predators Ar- and zombies and stuff. The new Archie <laughs> ones, the Mark Wade ones, those are a reboot. I think. Are yeah, I, I think uh, it seems. I get the sense. I mean, they're in high school still, but he is. I, mm. He's changing around the the nature of their their origins. To well, Veronica just shows up in issue two, so I guess it must be a reboot. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. I I I think. I mean, it would be. I I don't know how 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 it would be if Peter Parker was per uh you know perpetually in high school the way Bart is perpetually in second or third grade. And, um, you know, I think it also, I think they moved up a grade in, in South Park and that's been on about 15 years. So I, I don't know. I mean, that, that is an interesting conundrum because yeah, it could get really stale really quickly if yeah. Peter Parker was 15 or 16 for 50 years. Um, but, oh, no, 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 sorry. But I think the, part of the problem with sorry, go on. I, I think it sort of comes down to the, the whole like you know like the, what John Byrne bangs on about mm-hmm. about uh, you know you you keep the characters the same, you don't change anything. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, personally, I quite I I read uh, Dan Slott's Spider Man as a sort of bit of pulpy superhero nonsense. I'm uh, I'm quite happy to see him having the odd bit of success in business, <laughs> right? And uh, uh, you know, having you know, it's nice that I could read him as a six-year-old. You mm-hmm. know, the, the sort of reprints of the Stan Lee, Ditko stuff, mm-hmm. and that I can read him now and it, as a nearly forty-year-old, mm-hmm. and he's uh, he's moved on a certain do kind of like that. And I don't, yeah, it's not like I, I hate him now. Uh, <laughs> but, um, no, I think, I think, I, I think I've always liked him, but it is. I think if you, if you want him to not change, then, uh, you're gonna have to keep him as a pleasant childhood memory rather than sort of, I don't right, know. No, it seems, I, I think, it seems like an either or to me. And I think the See, issue with Spider-Man is they set up the series in a way where, you know, for the first, 10, 20 years, it was sort of an ongoing slow development. Mm-hmm. So he goes from, co- from, it starts off in high school, he goes to college, he leaves, he gets a job. Um, but the format of the book uh, was all about uh, soap opera, and you've got these steady developments of all the characters. And somewhere around about 1990, I think, they decide we've been at this 30 years, it's collapsing under its own weight, and he can't go any further. Mm-hmm. And the breaks sort of go on. Um, once they once they've married him to to Mary Jane, they've run out of ways of of moving him forward without turning him to, into like a middle aged man and dragging it too far from the original format. And somewhere along the line, I think they've they've shifted tack and said, okay, this is no longer that sort of book. This is now Peter Parker with a, with a, with a static um, status quo. But I think there was a really awkward bit when they were trying to get out of it, and it. it in much the same way as I think the X Men had when it finally stopped pretending it was a continuing a continuation of uh, of storylines um, set up by Chris Claremont. Mm-hmm. There was a really nasty grating gear change mm-hmm. when we finally stopped doing a follow up to that. And fortunately, what comes immediately after that gear change is Grant Morrison. Um, but then after Grant Morrison, you get another series of horrific gear changes, and the, the idea of it all being one seamless Uber story has never returned, and it couldn't at this point. 
Yeah. I, I yeah, I think that ultimately what it comes down to is is the whole uh dependence on you know, continuity or, mm-hmm. or not. Because everything that I said about Spider-Man could apply also to Batman and Superman. I just didn't have the affinity for those characters as a kid that I did for Spider-Man. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in, in the when they weren't so worried about continuity, you know, in the in basically in the 40s and 50s, they could do whatever they want and it would have that sort of John Byrne ending where everything was generally the same. Mm-hmm. But what that meant was you weren't weighed down with every time they make a change in the life of one of these characters, it's a notch or, or or something that has to be referenced in the future and is now baked into the character. Right. And after you do that eight or ten or twelve times, it 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 just starts everything starts starts falling apart. And I, I do agree. I think you're spot on that like about nineteen ninety was when things just completely started falling apart with with Spider-Man, which ironically I think was like in the middle of the Todd McFarlane run or mm-hmm. towards the end of it maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's it's it comes down to this larger philosophical question about about continuity, right? Um, which is which has been at the the war of the soul of of comic book fans and editorial teams, you know, everywhere. Well, and I think interestingly enough, I just realized having set up the idea of the worm turns here, I'll jump in and take my own turn. To suggest that at least for myself, one of the big things that I used to love, but now I kind of do hate, is something very close to continuity. Like, at a certain point, that was what got me into comics. That's what kept me devouring comics. The idea that I got to see a propulsive narrative where characters grew and changed was fantastic. And I still adore it. But at a certain point, and I really do think no matter how well constructed your character is, if you're going to do that point, you're going to hit a crisis 20 years in or 30 years in where everything has changed so much that you have to figure out what you're doing with it. And and for myself, I have to say, at a certain point, probably for myself of having followed the books for that long, once I got to the point where continuity started actively like um, eating its own tail or worse things that I thought were important were being dropped out that there was a shifting canon of continuity for every character because of course nothing could really seem to all fit in I started having a real appreciation for the way that Silver Age DC books had had cooked up a way to sort of um, have their cake and eat it too by having imaginary stories. Uh, the problem might've been labeling them as such, but you got to have stories where in some other part of the universe, you got to see what was happening with Superman where he married Lois. And of course, you know what a nightmare relationship that turned out to be, or in another universe, he's married Lana Lang and surprise, that is also truly a terrible thing to behold. And then later on down the line, you get to see Superman jr. And Batman jr. Teaming up to solve really weird, beatnik-oriented crimes under Bob Haney's World's <laughs> Finest comics. And and so there's kind of a way in which, even though it was utterly static, you got to, as long as you were willing to give up the idea that these globs um, connected, you could basically have anything that you wanted. You could have super cats, you could have super bats, you could have bat rats. I don't know why I'm talking in all animals here, so, you know, but, or any combination of the romances. It sort of seemed like a way that, 
um, gave you everything. The trick was that it, it, you know the, that none of it quote unquote mattered. So as I get older, as yeah. addicted as I am to the idea that the things that we are reading quote unquote matter to the characters. Um, there's part of me that when you do that, you really lose the ability to freely imagine with these characters and go to some of the more um, insane spaces that I feel that comic books used to represent, uh, you know, opposed to the more stoic or staid, um, you know, TV shows, books or uh, movies um, that, that, you know, of course, are now trying to sort of bite that flavor. So, so. So are you saying bring back imaginary stories? I think so. I mean, in a weird yeah. way, I'm finding myself really in the secret Marvel's Secret Wars event is uh, hilarious. It's basically a whole crossover of those. Yeah, exactly. In which all of these things don't even matter. There's ways in which they're not even really barely compatible with each other. But being able yeah. to allow... It's fascinating. Yeah, it, it really is. It, what one of the really interesting things is that that worked really well for DC for a while, and it mm-hmm. was only when they made those imaginary worlds and imaginary stories part of continuity and that they mattered so much mm-hmm. was when they had to really felt they felt that they had to reboot everything with Crisis mm-hmm. and get rid of Earth X and Earth Two and Earth Y and and all of Earth Alpha and all all of the other imaginary universes that they had actually been you know, uh, putting these, these stories in. And, um, if you just leave them imaginary, like, like you're talking about, you don't have that problem. Um, the other hand is on the other hand, absolutely. When I got into comics, it, it was the continuity and the, the world building. And I would even say the world building of comics is one of the things that has really influenced both, you know, movies and TV today. There's mm. no way that oh, you yeah. have lost or Battlestar Galactica without Chris Claremont and, you know, Frank Miller and Paul Levitz. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, sorry, it's a huge appeal. It's a huge appeal of it that, that like having a solid universe, like I still really like, um, when, uh, you know, characters cross over into each other's comics. I think we all do. I mean, look at what we're doing here mm-hmm. right now. Right, <laughs> you know, right, right. This is, this is a bit of naughty universe touching, isn't it? That's but, right. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, and that's the thing about, I don't know, the imaginary story, it does have, because what I'm finding with this Secret Wars business is that I'm just not invested in any of, um, in any of the stories because they seem sort of inconsequential mm-hmm. but at the same time uh, I do feel that exhausting weight of um, the history of continuity and uh, boy oh boy I just don't know what the answer is <laughs> well, right what, yeah. what answer I, I, I think that's interesting that's been mentioned even bandied about in this conversation is how we refer to things as the runs by a particular team or, or writer. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, someone brought a burn earlier. Burn will just basically, he takes over a comic and does all this stuff. Um, but it's all within the context of, you know, when we think of the Burn Fantastic Four run, mm-hmm. you know, every, everything that happened there. Sure, there's writers who have come after that who have used, 
um, you know, a lot of a lot of the things that he did there or or, you know, Claremont's run on the X-Men being probably the biggest or, you know, Stan Lee's on Spider-Man. So maybe the way to, to do it is to just think in turn, you know, instead of taking all of Spider-Man's history, if you sort of divide, you know, the, the, the Dan Slott Spider-Man and, and the Stan Lee Spider-Man and the Roger Stern Spider-Man and so on and so forth, then then it becomes you're taking more bite-sized chunks and you're not weighed down and only the sort of recent continuity is 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 what is what should or you know whatever matter um i i mean i that obviously doesn't work when you're switching writers every 6 to 12 issues mm-hmm. but when you have these large chunks it, it, it does make it more bite-sized i think they they're really that was a wonderful point about um the x-men needing to move beyond Chris Claremont, and it, it, it really needs to be someone like Grant Morrison, uh, both in stature and ability, who can move something like that beyond such a sort of titanic um, influence on 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 the book and 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 characters. Hmm. That's a great point, Paul. Did you have something? Did did we did we cut you off on a point you you had on the similar topic on that? No, no, oh. no, no, silly me. <laughs> All right. Well, um, it's it's interesting. I I feel that uh, um, Gary Lactus. Did you get a chance to to mention a character? Uh, what, yeah, let's have a think now. Uh, well, do, what do, what do you want? You want do you want something I used to hate, but now kind of well. I think love and hate are really uh, strong words to you. <laughs> uh, Actually, if it you makes know. you feel better, I, I feel they're not strong enough. I really wanted characters that you used to despise, but now you adore. But I thought that that was just going to make it more difficult. Yeah, for I just don't have those that strength of emotion for comic book <laughs> characters. You know, none of these none of these people are ex lovers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's very disappointing because I had some questions about you and Wolverine that I was going to ask. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, well, I'll make an exception for that, but. I'm not talking about that on air. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, let, let's talk about. Um, uh, all right, Bloodstrike. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. Wow. Picture picture the scene, <laughs> the nineties. Uh, you know what? I was, you don't I was say. Sort of in the nineties. I still wanted to uh, read comics, but comics were shit. They became really, really awful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, sorry, I, I've just been in, um, interrupted by some cats that have managed to um, come into the room that I shut myself away from. So hopefully they will... Come on, boy. There we go. Thank you, Lady Lactus. <laughs> Marvellous. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. So in the, in the 90s, uh, I was... Uh, I still wanted to read comics, but I just could not stand any of this image. Uh, Rob Liefeld, uh, you know, Todd McFarlane, uh, any any of this new when everything had shoulder pads and pouches, it just uh, it was anathema to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went like running into the arms of the likes of uh, uh, Dan Clowes and Hate. And, uh, Acme Novelty Library and, and all of these sort of things, you know, it totally pushed me towards the indie side of things. Yeah. But having looked at some of, 
Liefeld's recent work, and I think that Bloodstrike comic that came out recently with the floating penis in the jar. Uh, <laughs> there is now... The I, length I feel... he will go to not to draw feet. <laughs> exactly. 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 Uh, it's, uh, I mean, it is, it is fucking insane. It's almost, you know, it's getting to that kind of, uh, it's, it's almost like outsider art, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I can kind of, I don't love it, but I can kind of appreciate it. If yeah. you, if you like, sort of love to hate it, you know? Um, there's just something about it that is undeniably unique. And I try to, you know, I do, a, I do a bit of, a bit of comics. I'm not, I'm not particularly, um, uh, good at it, but I, I tried to ape a, uh, Rob Liefeld style for a cover. It was, uh, a comic called Knights of the Realm, where various knights of the realm go out to, uh, fight a dragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got Elton John and, uh, Cliff Richards <laughs> and, nice. uh, Mick Jagger, Sir Mick Jagger, Mook Jagger, the Scottish knight. And he, uh, uh, and I, I really wanted to draw them in that sort of Liefeld style, uh, with loads of lines and stuff, which I'd ridiculed for ages. Very hard, actually. It's a like, it's a totally unique thing he does. And I might not like it, but I have, I have totally come round to, um, and hey, another thing that helped was listening to interviews with him, mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've listened to a couple. I think one of them was a, a, a word balloon. I'm sorry to mention uh, podcasts that aren't in our special crossover universe, uh, but also the uh, Ink Studs. Um, when, uh, it's him and uh, Brandon Graham talking to Rob Liefeld in his home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, he really is quite a character. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, there's just something about his work that... Um, I, it's like I want, I want to really appreciate it now, and I feel like I'm on the way with this latest issue of Bloodstrike, with the, with the, with just some of the dialogue was like so bad, it almost goes right round the wheel to being amazing. Yeah. And 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 you know the penis in the jar. I mean, mm-hmm. and just just some of the dialogue was just unbelievable. Just like what what it's like the work of a really unique mind, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I'd say Bloodstrike. I'm specifically, I'm thinking of this character Cabot, who is, I think, um, he looks exactly like Deadpool, pretty much. Yes, right. But looks like Deadpool, but his his mascara's run a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's and that's what I reckon about that. <laughs> you know, I think I, I really appreciate you you mentioned that mentioning that because as you said, the hate and love thing is sort of too strong, but on my creator I used to hate, but now I quote unquote love. I do have appreciation for Rob Liefeld's sort of Fletcher Hanks esque qualities uh in his work. Uh in fact yeah. I had read like a, an old issue, like I quite enjoyed Brent, Brandon Graham's run on Profit, and I think on Comicsology yeah. they were giving away the first issue of Profit by Liefeld. I didn't realize that he was a you know sort of biblical superhero, um, violently decapitating people back in the nineties. And there's kind of a way in which I'm like, the way that Rob Liefeld stuff is truly deranged i appreciated the fact there was that period where he took the uh 
the Captain America issues um, that he was, you know, not able to have published at Marvel. He just, re, you know, lightly touched those up and published them as uh, Fighting American. Like, he really mm-hmm. has the it, the thing that is probably the most damning statement of comics that I can make is that Rob Liefeld seems to ac- accurately mirror most of the industry Almost all the time, his willingness to promise things that he never delivers, his his absolute <laughs> ability to be incensed when anyone accuses him of moral interpretude, followed by absolutely screamingly ethically incompetent, uh, you know, publishing procedures, followed by a genuine um Willingness to look at anything that sells and create a thinly veiled version of it, especially if it's something that he himself created for another employer. There's something (laughs) that I I feel is as I get older and more jaded and have gone from Sunday school to attending the black mass. I'm like, Rob Liefeld is kind of my guy. He really is like a, a a terrifyingly entertaining perversion of everything that I used to hold dear. I I got to give him up for that. That's interesting about him, like re- remaking the stuff that that he created. Mm-hmm. I'd like, I'd love to now, like, if I had unlimited amounts of money, I would buy Bloodstrike off him just so he had to recreate the same. <laughs> and, and then I'd buy that, and then he'd have to recreate it again, like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. He that would have would to keep making. I think terrific. we would, we would end up with something really, truly bizarre and like truly like psychedelic and you wouldn't you would need to like be a, a total different la- level of evolution to Plasma even comprehend what, right? what he was doing yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a certain sort of firing in all directions crazy enthusiasm about Leifold's work at its best that you that's sort of undeniable i mean it's it's the modern equivalent, in, or well, it's the 90s equivalent in many ways, of the more nuts aspects of the Silver Age and the Golden Age. It's the same sort of spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, he's a one-note creator, but sometimes that is the right note. Yeah. Not always in many of the stories that he's illustrated. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> he is currently doing a series called The Covenant, uh, which is an adaptation of the um, Old Testament story of the Ark of the Covenant being stolen by the Philistines. Wow. That's a real book that you can buy. Um, unfortunately, it's nowhere so near as insane as you'd expect. Wait, cat problem? Is it? This is this is our first crisis on secret convergence <laughs> on Infinite Podcasts here, as Gary Lactus has apparently been taken out by a former Herald, leaving just the rest <laughs> of us here. Paul, I, I if we're taking a if we're taking a hiatus there. Can I take thirty seconds as well? Yes, please. In case anyone please. needs to like uh, hydrate yeah. or or unhydrate themselves. Back in a second. I, I definitely, I definitely find the uh, the notion of Rob Liefeld as this like modern day Andy Warhol to be very uh, like a really interesting take. <laughs> I know, right? Who would have ever thought we would come to this? <laughs> no, it's but it's 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 definitely it's a good take. This it's much more interesting than say you know talking about Spider Man or you know Frank Miller or you know um, I and um, you know by all by all accounts of people I've talked to in the industry, he people say that he's a sweetheart. Like young young artists have said that he's very uh, you know very encouraging. And a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Although I, I, I think the uh, the phrase from this podcast that will always stick with me is what was the uh, what was the phrase that you used? Um, 
for his publishing schedules. Um, his uh, God, I don't. I, I this yeah, is that was that was yeah that was no. But when you go back to that, that that was uh, that just the the four words that you chose were perfect. It was uh, and, and it was um, it, yeah. I mean, and that definitely applies as well. But um, yeah, no, it's uh, and and I actually had no idea about that Covenant book, and that does sound good, even despite it not necessarily being as nutso as uh, one one would hope a, a comic book, you know, by Rob Liefeld based on a on an Old Testament Bible story would be. <laughs> right. I mean, just... just It's remarkably sane. Yeah, really? It okay. really is a remarkably sane comic. Mm-hmm. I was very disappointed. Yeah, that <laughs> that is a shame in a way. I'm sort of like, oh, Paul, no, it's it's so <laughs> close to, like, being the comic book trifecta, you know? It's, I mean, just... it's, it's not actually – it's not horrifically bad or anything. It's, mm-hmm. it's just a surprisingly straightforward version of The Covenant. I remember hearing your review of that, yeah. It's, it, it's not written by – it's not drawn by him, is it? No, it's drawn by a guy called Matt Horak. Right, yes, yes. I'm sorry if you said that. I had to, I had to let my, my wife out of the, our spaceship that we live in because <laughs> the, the, the cats – we've got these young cats and they, they escape – we don't. It sort of takes two people to leave. We don't have a proper airlock. You know. uh, sorry, I, I disappeared briefly. Then no, I no, no worries. We we took a we took a small break. In theory, I, I hopefully can suture in Paul's uh, mention of the covenant as surprisingly sane, and uh, we can all evince uh, disappointment about that. <laughs> Uh, well, we're, we're definitely well in the realms of, uh, Freeformville. Is there anyone else who maybe has a, a creator up their sleeve that they have, that they have switched on over time, um, to follow up Mr. Liefeld with? I mean, I, okay. I, oh yeah, go, yeah. I'll go with Brett Blevins simply because, uh, again, um, somebody I did not like at all when he showed up as an artist on New Mutants. Mm-hmm. When I was, uh, I would have been, what, let's see, 13, 14. And this is the first, May- I've been reading New Mutants for a, a while at this point, and, and Brett Blevin shows up, and this is a major shift of style and a general backtracking on the way the book had been going, and I did not like that at all. Mm-hmm. And looking at it now, I think, you know, actually, that's really good cartooning, what he was doing on that book. That's, it's, it was just, um, horribly out of line with what I'd come to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the problem was they'd, they'd obviously decided the kids had, had matured a bit much and uh, they were making a conscious effort to write them about three or four years younger than they had mm-hmm. been under under Chris Claremont. So bringing on Brett Blevins to draw them much uh, scrawnier and, uh, and do semi-comedy stories with them all helps to irritate anyone who's, who is liking the book the way it was. But the actual art, you think, no, actually, this is really... This is really sort of energetic, um, you know, character-filled stuff. This is I didn't appreciate this properly at the time. Interesting. Did uh, was that was that run when he was the regular pencil penciler? Was that Louise Simonson doing the writing then? That or? was Louise Simonson writing. Yeah. yeah, this is around the time of Fall of the Mutants. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, I, I wasn't following closely, but I remember at the time being. Uh, also sort of um, turned off by the tonal shift in the in the way the characters were portrayed because you're right they seemed a lot more sort of younger and enthusiastic uh, you know there was a, there was a lot more uh, even compared to the Claremont standard a lot more exclamation points in a way that I find they'd, I found a they'd, offsetting 
they'd been sort of the new X-Men in, in waiting under Claremont. And then Louise Simonson comes on and suddenly it's all wacky hijinks and sneaking out of the window to avoid teacher. Mm-hmm. And, and this is after, oh, sorry. This, this is after the Bill Sankevich art, right? This is after that, right? Way up. Was, way up. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. Yes. 20s or so. And then you right. have a stretch with Jackson Geis was drawing it immediately before. Right. Before X Factor, right? Then and then Jackson Geis, I think, went on to X Factor. If I'm not not mistaken, he was. I think he drew certainly the first issue, if not the first few issues of X Factor. Right. Okay, sorry. Yeah, no, I I I, uh, I think I might have given up uh, on on the New Mutants at that point for a while. Mm-hmm. But I recognized. I certainly recognized Brett Blevins' work. Mm-hmm. Is is Blevins still uh, doing stuff? currently paul i feel like he's a name that i still run across in places but i know what you mean i'll just look him up on wikipedia certainly an image search for 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 brett blevins turns up a lot of of nearly naked women which is i'm just doing that at the moment because i never read um uh much past the first i don't think i even got to issue 20 with the new mutants i had a sort of sporadic collection of those in the 80s mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm looking at some of the art now from the his work from the you you can you find it eventually you sort of scroll down and you can see it mm-hmm. it is nice i see what you mean about the the cartooning and if yeah you, if I you do a google search on Black Levin's new mutants mm-hmm. right yes and I can also see why you, as a as a sort of younger individual, wouldn't be so into it. It's like when I, when I was that age, it was when it, it was around about. You know, remember Meltdown, Havoc and Wolverine? Oh yeah, oh, yes. mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Gorgeous, fully painted work. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that was just the height of maturity for me at that age. And yeah, I, I, I had no watercolors. Yes, yeah. and and Havoc was James Dean, I think, right? Oh, yeah, quite. They used James Dean as the model? I think he did, as the visual yeah. model. So there was a lot right. of times where I was like, whoa, whoa, what's happening with Havoc here? He's He suddenly has started lounging against a lot more things than he used to. So, yeah, it was kind of interesting. Uh, here we are. Yeah. I've looked up Brett Blevins on Wikipedia. Blevins left comics in the mid-90s and moved into doing animation storyboards, and he won two Emmys in 1996. Well, there we go. There we go. Wow. Get out of comics. Since 2005, he's been doing gallery art. Ah. Was he ever a Superman artist or a Batman artist? I think uh, maybe in the early 90s, or am I wrong on that? He did Batman for a while. Yes, that's where, yeah, Batman would be yeah, where I remember him. Huh, it's funny. Like I said, I could have sworn that I saw him, his name on stuff relatively recently. Maybe it was just as I was scraping together a a horrifying um, digital Batman collection. That would make a lot of sense. Um horrifying more in the extent that I just continue to buy the issues on comiXology and, and kind of, you know, hoard them away on like an, an ever growing hard drive. But, uh, um, that's really neither here nor there. So Brett Blevins, interesting choice. Not what I would have necessarily picked. How about yourself, Chico? Is there a a character that you, um, a creator, I'm sorry, that you, uh, 
Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna answer both the love love to hate and hate to love. Great. Uh, but I'll do it. I'll try and do it really quickly. Um, so I was a really big New Teen Titans fan in oh, the yeah. '80s, mm-hmm. and um, I am ashamed to say that I was really bummed out when the George Perez when George Perez was replaced by Jose Luis Garcia yeah. Lopez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time, I was like, "What is this?" You know. Mm-hmm. However, I have since then come to come to realize that uh, Garcia Lopez is one of the greatest artists of the, you know, of, of the post-Silver Age, you know, uh, superhero artists. And it was really just a reaction to any change, you know. If Jack Kirby had taken over the uh, the new Teen Titans after Perez, I would have been upset. Um, and so I, I am. I mean, I'm I'm literally embarrassed to admit that. Yes, I reacted very negatively to Garcia Lopez's artwork uh, in, in that setting. Although there probably had been Superman stories with him that I had read before that. Um, but since then, I have definitely come to put him on a sort of superhero artist Mount Olympus, and uh, you know that 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 was just the uh, sort of immature, I think, resistance to change of a teenager. But um, I'm going to say the one, and I think it's sort of the obvious one, and I apologize if someone else had this. I mean, the one that's I've definitely gone from love to hate. There's no one on on the order of Frank Miller, um, uh. and. And I mean, the guy wrote, you know, two of the, the, you know, two of the best Batman stories, wrote and drew one of, you know, mm-hmm. the two best Batman stories. And, you know, his sequel to The Dark Knight was the most disappointing sequel in all of comics. And, um, I, the goddamn Batman stuff with Jim Lee was just, a, a, just, just, I mean, just a, 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 I don't even know what, like a mind enema. It was just so, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> uh, and and you know I felt that he 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 didn't I really 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 loved Sin City the first say one or two or even three collections but it really cannibalized itself and became a parody of itself um and I just think that you know something happened I I really try and judge people not by their, you know, I try not to take their politics or their personal actions into account. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't want to, I mean, he clearly became some kind of real right-wing lunatic and almost had a breakdown, I would say, you know, around the time of 9-11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 I, you know, it informed his work, unfortunately. You know, I have much bigger beef with someone like Woody Allen because he hasn't made a great movie in 25, 30 years than the fact that he married his stepdaughter. You know, people's right. personal, I would let my kids watch the Cosby show. You know, the fact that Bill Cosby did whatever he did does not affect, in my mind, you know, a great family TV program. Like, my kids wouldn't know that what Bill Cosby did. And so it doesn't affect the Cosby show. So I don't want to say that, you know, um, uh, Frank Miller's sort of political right wing meltdown or whatever, but it really does coincide with when his work stopped being incredible. I mean, what he did on Daredevil is, is, you know, as good as or better, you know, what was going on with uh, the other really great things in Marvel in mm-hmm. the early so I'm, I am going to pick uh, Frank Miller as the one that would love to hate, and Garcia Lopez is the one. But I, I didn't really hate him. I just hate. I would have hated anyone who came on after Perez. Well, and on the Titans. And, and, and I'm sure you, of course, know this, Chico. But but Dick Giordano, who was like the 
editor in chief of DC at the time, yes. is on record as having said that the two guys that he was always surprised weren't the biggest names in the industry were Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and Jim Apero, who are both amazing. And I adore them both now. Um, and the thing that I think is really interesting is, is Giordano, in order to keep them both working in various ways, gave Garcia Lopez like tremendous amounts of jobs in the, the marketing and the, license, of DC, yes, uh, the yes. licensed art stuff. Yes, so, yes. you know, it, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that on the one hand that totally allowed him to, to make sure that this amazing artist was in a very weird, stealthy way, still kind of the face of DC comics in a way. And yet, What's tough is now when going back, when you realize how great that this artist is, it's, it's kind of tough to hunt up, you know, it's, it's bits and pieces here and there, you it know, is. as far as his comics work goes. So, you know, but I just want to say that's right for about 20 years, all of the DC style guide stuff in house. And that was sent out for like people who were doing like DC coloring books mm -hmm. or all of the style guides were drawn by Garcia Lopez. And for a period, any T-shirt or whatever that you bought in stores was Garcia Lopez yeah. Superman. Or And um, I, I completely also want to agree on, on Jim Aparo. Mm -hmm. And I would say at least for him, I mean, he, he was the Batman artist for 20 years. Well, see, you know, like, yeah, exactly, exactly. And for a certain generation, he's the Batman artist. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that yeah. may be the case for me. But one of the things yeah. that is fabulous is when you have that, that hankering, like you realize how good he is, you can start digging and digging and digging and you can pull up all this stuff. And that's wonderfully rewarding. And so it's it's a shame that on the one hand, there's sort of this secret triumph with Garcia Lopez. And yet it's harder to hunt up. Like, you know, you don't have 20 years of Brave and the Bold comics featuring Garcia Lopez. And it's in a, in a way, it's just a shame. You know? It is. It absolutely is. So. So, uh, Mr. Lactus, do you have the do you have the creator flip? Do you have a, do you uh, have a swap? Well, well, I mean, creator wise, uh, when I was uh, I was talking about the 90s and when I was pushed into the arms of indie comics by. Uh, by the the likes of uh, Liefeld and and the gang, uh, uh, I, I I really quite liked Peep Show. I liked Joe Matt's work. Mm. Um, what a good but choice. then, I mean, that's just I mean that's obvious, isn't it? I mean, mm. the guy descended to um, uh, like the ultimate in onanism, mm -hmm. which was <laughs> drawing drawing. Uh, Spending a, a good deal of time drawing a comic, an autobiographical comic, about how much you masturbate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think it's kind of... Uh, well, now I describe it, actually, it's, it might be brilliant. But <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> uh, it was just like, you know, I kind of, I kind of liked... Uh, the early, the early peep shows where it's like, you know, it's him and Chester Brown and Seth and they're hanging out and it's like, you know, and I, and I was a, I was a youngster and like, you know, with, with dreams of doing comics, still am, have dreams of doing comics, but I'm 40. Uh, but, uh, then it just turned into this sort of, it was just too much. It was like, 
oh man, it's just turned into like a fucking spunk-filled sock, you know, in my hands. <laughs> and it's like, I just don't, I don't want any of that anymore. And then Chester Brown does his, does his comic about, um, visiting prostitutes. It's like, I just, I, look, no, I don't want to know now. I think <laughs> it may have had some sort of appeal, I think, what, like maybe when I was younger. And I think that, that this is kind of relevant to everything we're talking about, you know, because obviously we age and change as people and, uh, and that changes our perceptions of of what we like and don't like and you know we can look back on things we didn't like and think oh well you were just a, an idiot you were just a young idiot but mm-hmm. um yeah I, th- I think when i was younger that sort of um uh, balls out confessionalism if that's a word confessionalism mm-hmm. uh had some sort of appeal you mm-hmm. know but then as i sort of lived more of life i thought oh Oh, stop it, man. Oh, no. <laughs> just, just, just don't do that. Well, no, the thing why that are I, you doing that? I, the the 90s was an era for, for confessional comics, autobiographical confessional stuff generally, wasn't it? Whatever happened to that whole genre? It's sort of, I mean, it was the leading thing. It was the big thing in, in, in your critically acclaimed indie for years. And well, Chester Brown's book was only a couple of years ago, you know. Comparatively. Yeah. So, social oh. media, I think social media happened and people just, everybody started doing their confessional stuff on Facebook and Twitter yeah. and they started having blogs and it, maybe that had an effect because those things were not in existence in the nineties. That's a really, really good point actually. We don't need to. Sh- need stuff we don't need any more sharing do we right Everyone's sharing there's buttons for sharing that's right <laughs> whereas before yeah you actually had to go out to the store and 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 spend money if you wanted to hear someone's right. like share way too much information about their sex habits like now it's Holy just shit. yeah just just that's, that's that's hilarious that he's, he's put all that time and effort into doing this comic you mm-hmm. know yeah. I'm, I'm kind of i'm now thinking about Chester Brown in uh, in Yummy Fur, and uh, when he stopped doing his the stuff that I loved, which was all the Ed the Happy Clown stuff. Oh my god, which was amazing! Yeah, right. Well, it I, really, really was. And then he starts talking about you know his relationship with pornography as a teenager and his masturbation habits. Uh, it's like uh, you know, I, I'd imagine there was something in there in him that wanted to just sort of share this and, and like not feel alone and I'd imagine he got some sort of neatly typed letters back about sort of like oh yes I used to masturbate like that too and he didn't feel so alone but that's an awful when you when you think about how you could probably just go on some forum and and get that sort of confirmation that affirmation yes um like you know within minutes <laughs> that's right nowadays. yeah uh, Tumblr is to your friend yes yeah Exactly. Yeah. Too much information now at lightning speed. I should point out though that also I think it's it's worth noting that 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 a lot of the indie comics also did change some of the auto bio stuff moved into a larger context, which is there's a lot more reportage uh stuff than we than there used to be where yes. uh comic creators are looking beyond themselves to, to the horizon. You know, you can see guys who did Absolutely amazing work, I, and here it is that classic. Like I'm blocking. Like who who did uh, Palestine? Thank you, Joe Sacco. Joe right? Sacco, yeah, yeah, exactly. He did some very entertaining. Oh, look at me! I can't get laid comics. But once he moved into the realm of of larger reportage, it, I think it it really allowed a lot of people in some ways to be like, oh, okay, th- this is what's next. Because I think there was a sort of uh, 
onanistic circle uh, that 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 many people have been tra- trapped in, you know, sort of, you know, arguably kind of uh, in the shadow of our crumb, I think. Um, and then and then there was an attempt to actually re-engage with the the larger world, uh, even as the larger world discovered the internet and everyone's begun retreating into their own private onanistic circles on their own again. So you know, although it's a different book is sort of. Even the Chester Brown book is sort of along those lines because it's not, I mean, I've not read it, but I believe it's got a sort of his big argument about why this whole thing is great. And yeah. it's not as if he's done a, um, a general autobiographical confessional. He's written an entire book about, yeah, he's written an entire book about a subject and an experience that he has had, which most people have not had. That's right. So, um, and, more, and he does as an act. argument, yes, as a, as an argument and a piece of advocacy for a larger social issue. I don't mean to cut you off, Paul, but absolutely, I have read it, and you're, you're absolutely right. It's you have, yeah. I, I must, I must say, I haven't read it as well. Uh, yeah, so I'm sort of dismissing it uh, with with no no leg to stand on. <laughs> there we go, Chico. Let's let's get a consensus here. Have you read the Chester Brown book on prostitution? Very important. I have not read the, I read about it, but I, mm-hmm. in fact, did, did not read it. Um, I did read a lot of the stuff that you guys were talking about, Peep Show and Optic Nerve and mm-hmm. things like that in the 90s. And, and I think, like, uh, it is true that there's a, a different kind of retreating that's happening with the Internet, but um, there is um, this ability, you know, uh, you can go on Twitter and find – thousands of girls like the girls in ghost world but when ghost world came out it sort of seemed like a unique thing because that those those girls hadn't been portrayed in comics and mm. sure you you knew people like them but I, I i do think that even as people retreat and i'm not trying to make a big uh, play for you know just a, a universe where everyone's just sitting behind their computer i'm i'm actually wildly technically uh um you know, inept, but, mm-hmm. um, I do think that the social aspect of social media, um, is, is a little different in, in, in that sense. Um, and you, you can go out, you can interact with people. I think the biggest problem is that people tend to find their own little echo chamber in, in, uh, mm. in, in social media. Um, and then the other thing worth pointing out, um, a lot of that autobiographical stuff was, um, sort of, uh, you know, white male dudes who didn't fit into society. Oh, God, Many yeah. of them didn't come from urban. So it's like, it, it was a very small subsection. Now, yes. I'm not blaming anyone for that because ultimately, uh, since then, certainly other people, you know, there's been women, people of color, you know, you had yeah. Persep- Persepopolis or whatever it's called, you know, showing the, the, the autobiographical stories of other people. But that, that 90s, I, I often didn't even know the difference between the creators when people were talking about them because the, the autobiographical stories were often so similar. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, um, Guys from cities like, you know, Milwaukee or, you know, uh, just very similar sort of smaller industrial American cities, artsy guys growing up in them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I I think we're, you know, we're, uh, we we, we have gotten, you know, a a lot more uh, of that on on the internet uh, through, you know, through other ways. But the the point about like the the reportage stuff, I think, is really great because there is a lot of that going on that just wasn't going on twenty years ago. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's true. And and fie on you for for stepping on my empty, empty and bitter, bitter, cynical point and showing it up for the shadow that it was. I I curse your name. But, no, uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So you're absolutely right, though. I, I'm glad that you uh, you pointed it out. Hmm. Anyone else? Creator up the sleeve. It's great. This is a free for all. If you've not had a chance to speak up and and uh, defend or uh, offend, please please jump in now. <laughs> There we go. There we no, go. All right. We're so, ready to move on to the book, I think. I think right? so, yeah. Let, let, let's move on to the book round. Um, oh, I think shit. I, I've got nothing. Oh, really? maybe I have. You okay, guys go. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, like, let's make Gary order first. Uh, Paul, do you, do you, you, you are um, our, 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 our rock, our, our Plymouth, our foundation. What have you got up your sleeve? Okay. I mean, I suppose technically this one could have gone under creative as well, but Cerebus the Aardvark. Ooh. Ah, yes. And a great <laughs> yes. segue from what we were talking about earlier, in a way, too. Really. That was the biggest chorus of mm-hmm. sagely R's. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> the, the Frank Miller of Indy. Um, yes. <laughs> because Cerebus the Aardvark... I don't know how many people um, uh, people listening to this today will even remember that Cerebus the Aardvark at one point was the great 300-issue Dave Sim comic that was going to be a, a massive achievement. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah, a critically acclaimed book all the way up to, what, you know, around about Melmoth, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly Jacker's story. Oh, yeah. Um, Church and state, high society, both you know, all very highly regarded. And then somewhere around issue 200, it goes off a cliff in a pretty spectacular way because it becomes pretty much nothing but a vehicle for Dave Sim to set out um, the philosophy of religion which he has developed, which turns out to be one that's not desperately keen on women. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially amounts to him, I, I gather, amounts to him reinventing the Gnostic heresy. Um, so what had been really, what started off as a, as a fun, uh, Conan parody and then became actually quite a very, very well done, um, political social satire. Yes. Degenerates into, uh, one of the most technically competent pieces of outsider art ever made. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, I was, uh, on Usenet, uh, this being the pre-web era around the time that it started turning. Mm-hmm. And the reaction at that point was was fascinating because initially people simply couldn't believe that Sim was serious. Yes. Um, even when these opinions started being reinforced in the letters column, people were arguing that it must be a metatextual aspect of the overall story. Mm-hmm. And there was a long period of denial before people, before everyone accepted that no, Dave Sim is serious about this, and this is what Cerebus is now. Um, and in a way, it's. I mean, I don't want to say it. It. Uh, completely undermines high society and church and state because they work quite well as self-contained um volumes they're still worth reading Mm -hmm. but it does undercut them to know first of all that a lot of the um the world building in church and state is uh, especially at the end is then going to be go on and be directly contradicted and thrown out later on um but also to know that that whole idea that this was a 300 issue saga um it never came to that, or it did, because he made it to issue 300, mm-hmm. which was a great achievement in itself. And there's still some really interesting formal experiments going on in those later issues. Oh, yeah. But you really do have to have a very high tolerance for ranting people on street corners to be willing to read all 300 issues of Cerebus, which is a tragedy because it's so much talent has been 
was spent on it. Oh, yes. But by God, it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because it's such a, it's such a interesting way to tie into, uh, Chico's point about sort of trying to separate the, the artist from the artwork. God knows if there's anyone who it, 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 it might be easier in some cases, like, I don't know, Woody Allen's movies or, the, um, the, the Cosby show because the creator is, is, you know, next to the piece, but you've never seen anyone lash themselves to the mast of their own art the way that Dave Sim did with Cerebus. Um, to the point, especially in those later points. So, Chico, how how would you handle a situation like Cerebus in that sense? So, it's interesting because Cerebus is almost th- like like three different comics. It's I, And I had only read, again, I was younger, so I started reading it because I just thought it was a cool Conan parody. Mm-hmm. It was in that part of that, bla- I discovered it in that black and white revolution when I also discovered the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I think it was around the time that I discovered Judge Dredd. So, not, not that that's a parody of anything, but, you know, that, those were the, the things that I was, you know, sort of indie things in the, in the 80s that I, that I was reading. Um, and so, a uh, Judge Dredd for us was an indie because it was an indie reprinting the, the, uh, the British strips. Sure. Yeah. But, um, so I actually, as a kid sort of gave up on it as it started changing from the Conan parody, um, you know, which was, you know, wasn't, it was less than a hundred issues certainly before he started getting into his more serious stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I do plan at some point like other things on reading the three, the 300 issues of Cerberus. I mean, I've read and heard so much about it and I do actually, I've been to Britain three times and twice I spent the whole day at Speaker's Corner. So I actually have a very high tolerance for people ranting mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and even people who I disagree with or who I think are, are not, you know, are insane. Right. So um, if I it's think you might be well, surprised by the level of length and detail in which Dave Sim expounds on his philosophical views over pages right. and pages of closely spaced text. Well, and that, and yeah. that could get that could really that could become grating. I, I definitely don't deny. I mean, my big problem with some with uh, you know the Frank Miller stuff is not the right wing turn. It's especially with like the Batman stuff that you know the second Dark Knight and mm-hmm. the uh, the the Batman that he did with Jim Lee. It was just bad. It, 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 I, I could, you know, I have no problem with right wing stuff. Uh, you know, I thought American Sniper was a very interesting movie. I, I disagree politically with almost everything about the movie, but I thought it was one of Clint Eastwood's better movies of the last, you know, to, you know, since since A Perfect World or Unforgiven. You know, I, I, so I, I don't, I don't mind things that I disagree with, and people have always gone out of their way to say that, yeah, Dave Sim went nuts, but there's still interesting things in there. So I haven't given up on it, you know, on it as a 13 or 14 year old when, uh, you know, when, when it went away from just, uh, being a send up of savage sort of Conan. Um, I would actually like to go read that stuff and church and state and high society have always, you know, made every list of, you know, the great, you know, collections and storylines, so I, I myself will go and, and check it out. I don't know if I'll make it to 300, but, um, you know, it's been collected in those big, you know, phone book black and whites. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know from experience on that, but, um, I would like to wade into those waters. Right. Yeah. I've, 
I've I've never read uh, Cerebus, and uh, well, I've tried several times, mm-hmm. and uh, I uh, Chico Leo. I, it's good that you still hold on to that dream of one day reading it because <laughs> I've I've given up on it. I really have. Uh, I've I've seen some of those uh, closely written bits of text, and uh, I, I honestly don't think my life is long enough. <laughs> so, so if really you don't mind me to go there, and and I appreciate that people who were on for the ride. It's like, yeah, they had an amazing ride and it was a unique experience, but I just don't think I'm ever going to get round to it. Really. Did you, uh, w- where and how did you try uh, entering it, Gary? Uh, if I you don't tried mind entering it issue one mm-hmm. uh, and I read, I read some of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, uh, people have lent, oh no, you should read this. Like, yeah, no, Church and State, yeah, that's a good one. I borrowed one of those for about two or three years before I had to give it back and I just you know I just never got round to it and mm-hmm. and at the moment right, we're doing the podcast alongside you know my other duties as a human being not who isn't just a brain in a jar um, I uh, like I have I have a stack of comics to read each week mm-hmm. to, to cover on the podcast there's just no way there is it's true. Just no it's way. true. It's a bad. I'm not a fast reader. I'm a bit of a dunce. <laughs> it's got to be about seven thousand pages. You're right. Three hundred issues, twenty five pages per issue. That is true. I mean, seven thousand pages. <laughs> well, quite, quite and, a... yeah, and and in fact, as I, I think we're we're all aware, there's there's entire issues where uh, Sim relies very heavily on text. I mean, text, yes. Melmoth in, is yeah. in fact. By and large, like an illustrated process. Lovely, lovely handwriting. Yeah. You know, don't get me wrong. <laughs> he's, he's got a, he's got a very, he's got very neat handwriting. Well, and this is one That's of those Gerhard, things isn't it? that I, that, that I think <laughs> is quite, to me, uh, amazing about Sim is, uh, as someone who dipped in and out and actually jumped in around the time after it fell apart. And came in for the you know the the apocalypse of the long slow slog to three hundred, uh, and jumped back and read the other stuff. Is I, I feel that Sim is up up until very recently, going by some of the uh, the uh, covers and interior artwork that he's been doing for IDW for other titles. Up until really relatively recently, I feel that pound for pound, Sim is a simply astonishingly talented cartoonist is probably you know the the, by virtue of doing 300 monthly issues over the course of decades but you know his lettering is amazing his ability for caricature is amazing you know for a while his ability to do um parody other voices and pastiches were all incredibly I, i i think i was talking with someone recently saying that for me i'm i'm actually semi quasi you know like my long shot hope is is that the strange death of alex raymond is going to be just an absolutely stunning read kind of a, a triumph of outsider art although probably probably may not happen i i think he's absolutely 
up until recently, a relatively professional, uh, astonishingly talented cartoonist. So it's kind of interesting to me. It's like watching a dude who is still in fighting shape get into a boxing ring and proceed to punch a stump for like 15 rounds. Like it's, it's completely inert. It's not as, as a spectacle. It only works in the level of, of terror and absurdity, but, but <laughs> oh my God, like the guy's form is just brilliant. So. Doesn't um, the entire last volume of the collected edition consist of Cerebus sitting in a chair and not moving? Yeah, very well yes. might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While well, perhaps giving a close reading of the Torah, I think, which yes. is just, I mean, that is, that is an, an amazing point to end up at where you're just like, holy shit. And, and there's that idea of like, well, did he carry that off? Maybe not. But could anyone carry that off? And look at the fact that he actually did it. You know, again, it's like that son of a bitch boxed a stump. I'm still in awe. You know, it's just that doesn't. And, and he did it while people were attacking him and banning him from, you know, various publications. And I'm sure his sales went down. And oh, yeah. I mean, oh they he, did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he really did it with like. I mean, he didn't have any reason to do it other than whatever was, you know, driving him to do it. I mean, there's certainly, he didn't do, you know, so much of what we've complained about, you could, you can chalk up to in comics, you can chalk up to like commercial decisions or marketing decisions or any number of things. But this was all, you know, all just from his head and heart, you know, and right. he, he, he gave no, you know, no F's. You know, it's, you an know ex- what? Yes. it's an extraordinary achievement in many ways. It ticks so many of the boxes for it to be an artistic triumph. It's, yes. you know, it's, right. he's such a talented creator. He's got something to say. He's achieved something on an astonishing scale. He's done things which, um, all common sense would tell you you shouldn't be doing if you want to make a living at this. And, um, and he, and he got to issue 300 and he made a living at it. Yeah. For all that, however, yes. um, you can't quite get around the fact that it boils down for the last third of it is a man setting out an extremely odd religious worldview, mm-hmm. which very, very few people are going to be interested in. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, oh, it, but it, the, the very nature of um, having to do a, a comic, uh, a monthly comic on your own with Gerhard um, it's going. It, it's it's a peculiar. Comics are a peculiar thing, and uh, yeah, the, the 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 very nature of the the medium that it was told in has uh, has completely warped the viewpoint of the teller. You know, it is sort of uh, yeah, like it. Yeah, it's it's it, it, and it's uh, there's. I don't think there's. There must be a way of avoiding it, but I don't know. Just time and time again, we see like great creators who are yes. like just too devoted mm-hmm. like if you if you're so devoted you need balance in your life i think and like these these people go go odd they go strange well <laughs> and they do strange. yeah yeah i mean look at if you look at frank miller and steve ditko and dave sim and I, you know i made a joke on on twitter that i wanted to see the comic book version of the end of the tour which would be Dave Sim and Neil Adams, like driving off to see Hoover Dam and talking about hollow earth theory. You know, that actually happened. I had the wrong location. It's not Hoover Dam. But they're, they actually were in a car talking. Neil Adams considered to be an amazing, absolutely fabulous artist, you know, who changed the nature of DC's 
how DC looked, totally believes in the hollow earth theory, completely, you know, is not, you know, very genially willing to ignore all scientific fact for it. <laughs> and, and that happens, that happens a lot to cartoonists in a, a remarkably high proportion. And, um, you know, one of the things that always struck me about watching the movie Crumb, uh, the, the documentary that Terry Zweigoff did about Robert Crumb, but also his two brothers, was to me the, the secret um, theme of that movie is, is that you've got Robert Crumb and you've got his two brothers. Crumb is hugely successful, but the other two are also cartoonists. And you look at their work, and their work is also stunning, but they are yeah. both more than a little nuts. And yeah. the thing He's, that Crumb is the most ordinary one there. Exactly. And that's what's so amazing about that movie yeah. is that he, yeah, he's the normal one. He's the normal one. And what is not explicitly said, but I think might be the case, is the fact that he is also the most financially successful one. That, that the, that, that the difference between what saves Robert Crumb from sanity, uh, from insan, the same sort of insanity that, that both of his brothers are struggling with, um, is the idea that at a certain level he had success and celebrity and that allowed him to stay engaged in the world and to be able to actually um, survive in the world in a way right. that when you are, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to map this across the people that I just mentioned because at one point Dave Sim was clearly hugely – the until until the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle guys arrived on the scene, the most financially successful uh, alternative indie cartoonist. Mm. He, um, he had groupies, you know. He, yeah, exactly. He had he had he had <laughs> groupies. Thing to think about, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. And you look at someone like Miller, who very clearly had uh, a, a lot of money. I think put his way, and yet I do wonder if just the nature of all those years of striving in a you know semi-squalid conditions for not a lot of pay ends up bending people into shapes that we cannot entirely recognize as lucid at a certain point you know that that there is an idea that if maybe if ditko had been given enough of the financial success to actually not keep him in a, a small rent control department, you know, um, fighting like crap that there would be a, that, that maybe Mr. A would be a little more, I don't know, Mr. B plus, you know, that he would be <laughs> able to, to have, have an, uh, um, a sense that you can compromise without dying because, because otherwise that was the, the actual physical scenario presented to them. Yeah, maybe, but I don't know. That objectivism's done a number on him, hasn't it? Has he not? He's actually turned down money. Has yes, I well, yeah, he I did think work that. like out of principle, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like like it's like Alan Moore, anti Kirby estate, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, very uh, just just odd. What a but yeah, what a wonderful mystery to have. Yes, just him, <laughs> just Ditko, just great. <laughs> I'm glad he exists. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Well, did he? Did you used to? Did you used to hate him, Mister Lactus? Is it? A, is is this a possible that worm turn that we that I can squeeze in here or no? Oh well, what Ditko? Mm -hmm. No, not really, not really. Uh, the only the only other thing I have left on my on my worm turning list is mm -hmm. uh, is, is Mister Terrific. 
Yay! I used to, to, uh, when when, you know, DC, late 80s, it's doing its new format thing, and it had All-Star Squadron. Was it? Oh, yeah. Um, And uh, those first few issues, I was fascinated because they'd have a central image, which would be a portrait of one of the uh, DC Golden Age characters, and then around the edges, there would be some of the other characters, and uh, I was th- th- these just seemed like a really exciting explosion of uh, like all of these golden age characters, you know. It just seemed like an exciting explosion of characters I'd never seen before. You know, people like the uh, the, the black cat, you know, mm-hmm. the boxing guy, and uh, and there's this guy. He's he's got like a green tunic on and a, a red a, a red sort of cowl thing. And he's got fair play written in blue on yellow on his, on his top. And he's got a, a big, thick wrestling belt and tights. And it's just, it's a kind of subtly ridiculous, um, uh, cause it's got like a collar as well. It's got like lapels on his, on his thing. And, uh, and I was always like, who, who is that guy? Who is that guy? <laughs> His name was Mr. Terrific, which is one of the finest names ever, (laughs) I think. Mr. Terrific. And, and then I, I went on and I, um, eventually read his first appearance in, um, uh, what is it? Sensational Comics, I think it is, issue one. Uh, It's, he's basically Batman, but instead of, um, Instead of having his motivation of, you know, his parents were killed, you know, all of that pathos. He's just a guy who's, uh, he's, uh, I'm going to read from the Wikipedia now. Self-made millionaire whose photographic memory, Olympic level athlete skills and mastery of the martial arts made him a virtual renaissance man. After graduating college at 13, he eventually became a renowned business leader in the community. Wow. Having accomplished all of his goals, he felt there were no challenges left for him to pursue, leading him towards suicidal ten. Mm. So basically, he was bored. He's... His bat through the window was um, a lady about to commit suicide, and he was like, well, I'm brilliant at everything. I might as well save her. And that, that sort of gave him a reason to live. And, um, yeah, there's a brilliant bit in the very first Mr. Terrific story where um, his, his younger brother gets involved with a gang. And, uh, and he shows up the gang with obviously with, with some some of his uh, wonderful fisticuffs. He's very good. But then he uh, the the others are like, uh, but he's not just tough. He's real smart too. And then he goes, well, if he's so smart, okay, add up these numbers. And, uh, <laughs> and he writes the numbers down. And man, sorry, I've got to, I've got to find the page here. Uh, it is just brilliant. Mr. Terrific. Yeah. Uh, oh, and he, um, he was a star baseball player as well. Just, uh, of course he was. Uh, uh, and so he, he, he punches, he, he punches the guy. Not nice to play with knives and dis, disarms him. And they say, uh, you see boys, he's not such a, uh, such a hero after all. Well, maybe not strong like you, but he's smart. It's like, Smart? Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see about that. Here, 
add up these figures and this this uh, gang leader who is like in a pinstripe suit looking like a suit looking like a bit of a spiv he's going like well six and five is 12 and nine is 24 <laughs> and then the kids are, are finally seeing through him like he's a dumbbell get the dunce cap and he, he does actually this gang leader is defeated by a, a very simple maths problem and he runs off into the distance wearing a paper cone with a D on Wow, they actually put the dunce cap on. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't want to see you around here again. <laughs> you won't. Oh, boy, with my dunce cap on. Brilliant. Um, uh, yeah, and then, and then they re- of course, they rebooted him in the, in the 90s and... Uh, with with Michael Holt, they got some things right. You know, mm-hmm. there's obviously there aren't enough um, ethnic minorities in comics. That's just a, a a general thing that you know is still being readdressed ridiculously. Right. But uh, but he's uh, uh, Michael Holt, an equal five black belts has won Olympic decathlon. You know, he's basically the same sort of guy. But he's got whilst contemplating suicide after the accidental death of his wife and unborn child. I really liked the the original Mr. Terrifics thing about he was just brilliant, but he was just bored. I really liked that because Mm -hmm. you don't really see that. And uh, when they redo it, it's kind of the same thing, but they inject Mm -hmm. effect. And he's got special T-spheres and he's got, uh, instead of fair play written on his ridiculous tunic, he's got like this leather jacket with fair play down the down the sides. I think he's got fair play tattoos on his arms as well. And um yes, I basically uh I I miss the charming anachronistic world of Terry Sloan. Yes. There's, there's something fu- there's something fundamentally misguided about saying how can we make Mr. Terrific look cool for the 90s. Still That's right. <laughs> That's right. They clearly, <laughs> A, they asked the question, B, the answer wasn't call Liefeld. So yeah, that's, that's two strikes against the, uh, the rebooted Mr. Terrific. It may interest people to know that my understanding is the guy with the D on the cap who runs off, uh, after being embarrassed by doing bad math. That is the secret origin of Darkseid. So that's <laughs> kind of good to know that that actually ties into the larger DC continuity too. Yeah, well, he is looking for the, the anti-life dump. equation, which is a math You're problem. You're right. Oh my God, Chico, <laughs> yeah, you have solved it. Often learn his maths. That's right. <laughs> that would be great if the reason why Darkseid cannot find this damn equation is he's just so bad. He's just like six and five <laughs> is twelve, uh, and eight <laughs> is twenty-four. So you know. I don't understand why no one's falling under my, my, my power. <laughs> Gentlemen, it is, it is just about time the, the diaphanous cosmic shimmering, uh, curtain that has united us is clearly dissipating to, to send us back into our own podcast universes. Does anyone have any, um, uh, final parting shots, uh, preferably cheap ones that they have to make that they didn't get a chance to cover in, in our, uh, Rondelay? 
Well, real quick, the book that I that I loved that I now hate is Mad Magazine, and that that is Ooh. that that's where I was going to go. And it is owned by DC Comics, and it did once have some of the greatest comic uh, contributors contributing to it. But it is so toothless, and like Saturday Night Live, such a pale imitation of itself, and it's very unfortunate. And I just think that Mad Magazine nowadays could be so much more with all that's going on in the world. And um, it's just so toothless and it's so sad uh, Mm -hmm. what it's become compared to what it once was. And I could, you know, go on and on and on, but that's my choice for the book that uh, I definitely loved. And uh, I mean, I I can't even tell you when the last time I read it was, so I can't really say that I hate it now, but Mm -hmm. even 20 years ago, it was a pale, pale, pale imitation of what it once was. It's always felt to me like a magazine made by people who are no longer thinking what would be a cool take on this topic, but what would be Mad Magazine's take on this topic? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, and just the toothlessness of their takes, you know. Mm -hmm. Mad Magazine at one point, you know, people wanted to burn it, you know. Um, Yeah. You know, now can you even imagine, you know, I mean, they should be having covers with, you know, the Black Lives Matter stuff and the, we had a huge Planned Parenthood thing that happened here where they accused people of selling baby scraps. I mean, these are, these are the issues that should be on the cover of Mad Magazine. And, uh, mm-hmm. instead I'm sure there's just going to be like an Alfred E. Newman looking like Donald Trump. Uh, it's just really sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, looking like, but Donald Trump, he's like, He's like in the news a lot, isn't he? He's really, oh, he is. He's running for president. That's brilliant. Oh, yeah. with, with the face of Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> well he's done. winning. He's yeah. running for president and he's winning. I yeah. mean, right now. It's still over a year oh, away, but. Really? Oh yeah, he's he's it's it's a huge issue here now. Yeah. We'll see he's what the, happens, but he's the number one candidate uh in the Republican Party and uh you know, the Democratic Party it's you know probably going to be Hillary Clinton, but uh yeah, I mean Donald Trump she's losing um numbers by by the day. She has a little scandal she's dealing with over here and uh yeah, Donald Trump's numbers keep keep rising and he just keeps offending more people and his numbers keep rising. Yeah, he's like a cross between Jeremy Corbyn and Bernard Manning, right? With yeah. with a little that's bit of James. Over here, we've got a super left wing guy who's like getting loads of like everyone's trying to stop him and like, but it's like no, we really want this guy, and uh, it's not even. We've got the guy who stood for the leader of the opposition. What? Yeah, we've got this guy who stood for leader of the opposition, uh, basically because he thought somebody ought to stand from the left wing version of the party, and it now looks like he's going to win, uh, which yeah. he was not expecting. So. Uh, Wow. Yeah. yeah. So See, and we could end up at war with America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's hope so. <laughs> well, and I, I actually was going to make a joke about the idea that that sadly, you know, the the idea of the rich, super competent person uh, getting bored and deciding to become a superhero basically sounds like most of the Republican candidates uh, for president here, minus the super competent part. Um, or any competency whatsoever. So, or really, let's be fair. It's a two-party system. All the Democrats are also rich, bored, and want to be a superhero, aka Mr. Fairplay, President of the United States. So, it's really this. It's sad, but that probably is the original uh, Mr. Terrific. Is the uh, is is arguably the the most 
the archetype in the real world that we are most likely to be exposed to as opposed to, um, you know, I don't know, a, a crazed orphan uh, vigilante lurking atop our rooftops. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, yes, uh, gentlemen, final sh- – if there are – speak now or forever hold your peace, by which I mean let's move on to having you guys uh, say where people can find you, perhaps on Twitter or Tumblr or Patreon, whatever you have going for you. What do you think? Any any last shots before I start making you um, um, declare your love for your own Twitter account? Um, no, I, my bladder is incredibly full. Okay. So, yeah. Well, that, that I do <laughs> want that as a, as a T-shirt. Gary Lactus says, my bladder is incredibly full. So. It's almost a catchphrase on our podcast, actually. <laughs> uh, our podcast is called Silence! Uh, silence with an exclamation mark and you can find that on uh, on on iTunes and, and all of that business, you can come and find it on mindlessones.com you can follow us on Twitter at mindlesspod mm-hmm. uh, and I am at Fraser Geesin for some reason I chose that name rather than Gary Lactus <laughs> Fraser Geesin, ridiculous <laughs> name on Twitter and um, yes and do do come and listen to me and my old pal The Beast Must Die pedal our tired crap into your ears um, uh, like we do well that last part goes without saying it's a podcast but thank you Chico <laughs> um, so you can find me on, on Twitter at at the Chico Leo, and our show is Fan Bros, and the show is on Twitter at Fan Bros Show, mm-hmm. and you can also go to fanbros.com. We're also on iTunes, and uh, check us out. Mm-hmm. And uh, Paul, you can find me on Twitter at if destroyed, and the podcast is at housetoastonish.com, or you can find it on iTunes or Mixcloud. That's delightful. And then, like I said, people who are still listening, despite the fact that Graham McMillan has not spoke and are, are, are still deeply, deeply grieving about that, you can find us here at waitwhatpodcast.com. We're available as Wait What Podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. Um, and really anywhere your RSS feed can, um, uh, can go, we're there. Uh, you can also find us on Patreon. Um, I do want to say look for episode seven of the Secret Convergence on Infinite podcast over at House to Astonish. Hopefully coming soon, I'll feature a link to them over at this episode's show notes, which again, you can find at waitwhatpodcast.com. I would like to uh, pass along a special thank you to the Beyonder himself, Mr. Al Kennedy of House to Astonish for organizing this uh, mega event. It's, it's much it's so much harder to make a big crossover happen is my understanding when there are no editors in the office to harangue. So thank yes. you. Well, all he's, for he's doing Jim all Shooter that. here. He's he, he, he is. And I hope that he hunts you down for saying that. So, uh, <laughs> gentlemen, thank you very much. This, this was a, this was a grand adventure and, uh, and, um, uh, thank you again. Thank you. It's a great privilege. Thanks.